Hello and welcome to the Bond Revisited podcast with me, Tom. And me, Joe. The podcast where we rewatch the Bond films one by one, discuss them, and then rank them alongside the other Bond films to build our own definitive list for the Bond franchise. You are listening to episode 9, where we'll be revisiting the film The Man with the Golden Gun. Now, I want to start with the big questions. The big question here. Oh, okay. Is The Man with the Golden Gun the worst name for a Bond film in the entire franchise? Wait, in the entire franchise? In or the entire the franchise. Not not just the ones that we've looked at so far? No, no, no. Let's put it all on the table. Wow, okay. Well, I'm going to go with no. Why would you go, go over no. it? Octopussy is pretty bad. <laughs> yeah. We always have Octopussy. I always forget about that one. Yeah, that one sneaks in there, I think, still. I was just kind of thinking about it, though, because like there is such a style to the names of Bond films you know you can tell when one is a you know when a title is like Bondy and stuff like that I, I don't envy the current producers and staff having to come up with new Bond titles but with all these classic ones you kind of just don't think about them after a while mm. but this one I was thinking about it was like it's just called The Man with the Golden Gun surely that's that's not very good is it Oh, I mean, I think it's a bit long. Mind you, so it was on Her Majesty's Secret Service. There's a lot of syllables in that. But, you know, it's got the gold element. You know, gold finger, golden gun, golden eye. Yeah, yeah I mean, it's got gold. But it's got gold. It's got the man. And he's got <laughs> the. the golden gun, you see. <laughs> yeah, it's, 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 it's not the best. Let's put it that way. Yeah. It should have been called Knickknack and the man with the golden gun. <laughs> Knickknack's Adventures. <laughs> we miss your <laughs> the chronicles of knickknack <laughs> oh oh knickknack yeah i don't know i think um i think of all the reasons to for that people criticize this film i think the title is probably one that could be forgiven i mean that's fair uh, i just want people to i think we should all just take this moment to step back and appreciate how silly and nonsensical some of these names are and how sometimes we shouldn't just take it and we should do a bit of reflection so what would you say, we're getting on a bit of a tangent, but very quickly, what would you say is the best title we've had oh. so far? Oh, so far? So far, yeah. Oh. I, I quite like Fundable, to be Thunderball. honest. Fundable. It's nonsense, yeah. but it's like fun spy nonsense. Yeah, I like it in, the, in, the, in terms of it's the operation name, Operation Thunderball, yeah. What about you? Uh, I, I might say the same, actually. I might say the same. Okay, cool. That's good. So, this is quite an interesting one, this film. I mean, I guess they're all interesting ones, right? I don't think I'm going to start any of these episodes saying, well, this one's just boring. Sorry, guys. <laughs> it's going to be a rough one this week. Skip this one. Yeah, just give this one a skip. But uh, no, it's an interesting one for a few reasons. Uh, one of them is that this is Guy Hamilton's last film that he directs. Yeah. So he directed Gold. Just to remind everyone, he directed Goldfinger, big hit. And they brought him back for Diamonds Are Forever. And then he stayed on for Live and Let Die. And now he's staying on again for The Man with the Golden Gun. So this is... I feel like we say this every couple of episodes. This is the end of an era. <laughs> and yeah. next week is start of a new era because we officially changed directors. And, and Guy Hamilton finally just completely steps away from the franchise. Yeah. And I mean, there's something to be said that the next film that we're going to be looking at after this one is one that is a lot more... Um has a lot more positive uh, reception. So maybe maybe it was not a bad thing that this was his last one. He's done his damage and he got out of Dodge. 
Listen, I mean, this is coming. From, this is like from your perspective, not mine. But for you, like you know, he did. He did Goldfinger. Well, way to go, guy. You've 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 come back. Hasn't quite been the same. So off your trot. It was just. I mean, this is we're nothing but tangents in there. But I just it does make me think in terms of these times where they give a certain director the keys to the franchise and just let them kind of go for a few films. I feel like it doesn't work out most of the time. No. Well, this one, I think The Man with the Golden Gun didn't do very well uh, financially. But that also could have been because it came out a year after Live and Let Die. So maybe people were just kind of a bit done with Bond. Yeah, potentially. But that's the, that's the second thing that I think is quite interesting about this film that you don't always kind of think about. Because, of course, all these films get reviews by critics and stuff. And generally, we don't care what they say. We're just here to, you know, we weren't there at the time when these films came out. So we're just going back and watching them and taking them for what they are. But out of the entire franchise, this film was the second worst review film, like, ever out of all of them. Really? Yes. So So what, is Die Another Day the top? No, no, no. Uh, a few to a kill is top. Die another day is like the sixth worst. What is in like contemporary reviews of it? I yeah, I think reviews. Yeah, yeah, reviews oh. at the time. Oh, okay. Oh, interesting. So this oh. is the second worst according to the people uh, at the time, which I I don't think that's maybe deserved. Although we'll get into it, but yeah, yeah. like this was just panned when it came out. That's really surprising because. As we'll discuss, and as my kind of opinion, it's not it's not that different to live and let die in a way. So, and that one didn't have such bad reception. So, I wonder, I wonder what happened. I don't know, but I, I just find it quite interesting uh, because, again, you don't normally think about this stuff. But really, this was seen as a major down point in the Bond franchise. Like this was seen as quite a low point. And to be honest, quite a few of the Roger Moore films, it's if you go purely based on the critical reviews at the time, it jumps all over the place. Like sometimes mm. it does well, sometimes they do badly. Like the best and worst of Bond, according to critics anyway, is in this Roger Moore era that we're currently in. Yeah. I guess that's kind of I was gonna say that must be it must have been quite a weird feeling to be a Bond fan during that time where you know things are changing like that. But then well you could also argue that it's been a, a little bit like that with Daniel Craig, like Quantum of Solace was kind of poorly received and then Skyfall was great and then Spectre was kind of on the down again. So maybe not to the same extremes, but it, it maybe it's not that different. No. No, I think that's fair enough. I think Piers Brosnan was considered just started great and just went down. Daniel Craig zigzagged and, uh, yeah, I guess Roger Moore zigzagged and then Sean Connery was started great and went down. So mm. it's interesting. Yeah. But shall we get into it? Enough let's get rambling. Into it. Yeah, let's do it. So we get the circles and I think the music's different. Okay. But I'm not sure... I always get this every single time where I I kind of see this or listen to this kind of intro bit, and maybe I'm just too focused on trying to find a difference. I think like, I think so. <laughs> like trying to find something that's different and trying to pick up on stuff. And every single time, I kind of question myself: like, did they change this song? Is this song different? Am I just kind of crazy? It's just kind of hard to tell. So it's probably exactly the same. But when I first heard that music, I was like, I think this might be different. I thought it was exactly the same. Okay, cool. It probably was exactly the same. Yeah, there was no nothing standing out to me. No shimmery effect like Time Was Out Forever. I think it was just the same. 
You gotta let the shimmer thing go, Joe. I'm afraid. Oh, it's, it's, within two films, we can't keep mentioning Diamonds it, Are Forever and the Shimmer. It will come back. It will come back with maybe Die Another Day had a bit of a funky gun barrel. I just yes. got. I just got to bide my time. CGI gun barrel. Yeah, it will come back. It's what we want. But then we get the walk, and I think it's the exact same footage from Live and Let Die of Roger mm-hmm. walking across. Yeah. Which is a shame. Not unexpected, to be honest, because I wouldn't think they would reshoot it for every film. But So we get the same solid walk and same awkward, jagged Moore shooting <laughs> the gun. Did you spot this time the, the early the early smoke? Yeah. Yeah, it's there. It's still there. <laughs> oh, Roger. <laughs> he tried. Yeah, he tried. And this all leads to us going to a beach. Very nice-looking beach. And there's a woman sunbathing and... Straight away, we have, as the film describes, a midget. Again, mm-hmm. I think we had this before. And I can't believe we're having this conversation again about what is the politically uh, well, correct term there. It's funny you bring that up because I did, I did look this up. Well, it was whilst I was researching and just looking up some of the actors in this film. So the character in question you're talking about was played by an actor called Hervé Villachez. And it just so happens that on his Wikipedia page, apparently when he was alive... He preferred to be called a midget rather than a dwarf. Okay. So there's your answer. Cool. Nice. Let's lock that in. Yeah. Straight from the horse's mouth. Yes. That, yeah. So, yeah. So we have a, a, a midget who we later find out is Nick Knack and is in this nice suit and basically is carrying this massive tray of drinks, which <laughs> they clearly make jokes at his expense throughout the film. And I'm undecided if this was meant to be a joke because he's just struggling so much. Like, they give him a comically large tray and amount of drinks on it for him to carry. Just no need. He would have done it in two trips, I feel. Oh, I didn't I didn't spot that, but yeah. And also, I mean, can you imagine the heat in that in that little suit? Like kind of been a very, very pleasant for that for him there. No, that could yeah. The shoot must have been a nightmare on him, I would oh, guess. Yeah. Uh yeah, so he's carrying this all this stuff to the woman and as the drinks arrive, we see a man come out of the water, and it's Christopher Lee. Oh my! Yeah, and Straight not away. just yeah, not just Christopher Lee though. Christopher Lee with a third nipple. <laughs> so can I just say that this film, something about this film, something about the editing, I don't know what it is, but they really liked, uh, really drop like just in your face shots. Multiple times during this, I was kind of like, oh, wow, we're just cutting to something and it's like right there. This wasn't necessarily a cut, but like it's right there in frame. The third nipple. It's all the zoom ins. And I can't remember what film did this before, but we've definitely seen this in Bond films before. I feel like not so much the Guy Hamilton films, but another one of them where you'll just get these sudden, like sudden quick zoom ins to focus on something. And we get that here where it's just Christopher Lee coming out the water and they zoom in on his chest into a, a fake third nipple. And you're just like, ugh, that, yeah. <laughs> Can you imagine going to the cinema in like two minutes, you're eating your popcorn and just like <laughs> nipple zoom. <laughs> it's a bold choice, that's for sure. Yeah, you wouldn't go for the hot dog, would you? You would No. <laughs> that's not an image I wanted to, come on, stop, move on. <laughs> I like the idea of it being called a bold choice, though. It's like such bold filmmaking. Wow. Just look at the artistic. It's got midgets and third <laughs> nipples right off the bat. 
You'd be sitting down thinking, is this the right film? Am I, is, this a, is this the Bond film? Yeah. So I guess we'll talk about this guy a little bit later, I suppose. But this is Christopher Lee is our villain for today. Yeah. And we don't really get a proper intro to him because he's kind of featured throughout the film. But like, there's no big thing about it. He just steps out the ocean and is there. Um, the big thing is, is the nipple. Yeah, I guess it's kind of a bit like Goldfinger where he just walks down and starts playing that that game it's just there hmm. so yeah Nick Knack opens the champagne for this woman and uh Scaramanga I'll just say the name Christopher Lee's character is Scaramanga the villain for the film and they're just kind of relaxing on the beach uh then a man in a black suit and like a black trilby like an, another one of these like American gangster-esque sort of guys I didn't realize how many of the old Bond films had these type of characters in well, that, you say that because it is exactly the same actor. <laughs> it's the same actor from Diamonds Are Forever. Oh, well, there you go. Yeah, because I, I was like, that kind of looks like him. And then at one angle, I was like, no, 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 that's not him. And then after I read, I was like, oh, wait, no, it was the same. It's the guy from the, the uh, crematorium or who drove Bond to the crematorium. Yeah, same guy. Okay, that's pretty cool. But it's uh, I know it's a Guy Hamilton thing. Like, he was clearly obsessed with America or just wanted his films in America because we saw that with Goldfinger, Diamonds Are Forever, and Live and Let Die. Uh, but even when he does a film that's not set in America at all, he still squeezes in an American stereotype in there. He couldn't help himself. Oh, yeah. I, I kind of like the idea that it is actually the same person <laughs> as from Diamonds Are Forever. I mean, it's never really explained in the film, but I kind of like the idea that, yeah, this guy has come from Las Vegas to try and do what he ends up doing. <laughs> mm. Yeah, that'd be cool. So, yeah, Nick Knack basically shows this this man in black, as I'll probably call him, inside. Uh, so they're on this island, but there is this kind of big complex or lair, let's say. Uh, so Nick Knack kind of shows him in. It's another... It's another Bond villain lair with a load of rocks inside. Yeah, yeah. I thought of you when I saw that. I, it's just like I'm so surprised that these all look the same. Yeah, it does. Yeah, this one. Well, where, where he eventually leads into is interesting, but but when we see more of the lair later on, it, it's kind of a bit of yeah. It's just it's just the same again. You're right. It's just metal stuff and then a little bit of rocks and and steam <laughs> or vents. Yeah. I don't know if they're reusing the sets or props or anything like that, but like most of these bases, like you could take shots from these films and you probably wouldn't say which one was which because so many of them blend together. Like Kananga's was also like this and Dr. No was the original. That's like most yeah. films have this type of base and this type of room where it's very fancy, but there's just ton of, a ton of rocks in it. Yeah, I think you're right. It's, it's got, it's, it's kind of, it's been done now. That's one of the things from this film is I just don't didn't care about like the outside shots. We've seen it already, like the beach and, and this really cool scenery and where this was actually filmed, I think somewhere in Thailand. Amazing, right? Amazing sights. But once it goes indoors into these sort of bond layers like that, it's just uh, whatever. Yeah, it's just, yeah. Like you say, we've just seen it so many times. And it does somewhat just kind of not ruin the older ones, but you're just like... It, why didn't they just put a bit more effort into these to make them a bit more distinct? Telling you, same contractor. He must be. He's getting work. He's getting paid. He's getting even more work. million dollars, probably. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. So this man in black, uh, in this black suit, uh, Nick Knack pays him some money, says, here's half. 
and you get half afterwards. Uh, and then the guy gets a gun out. So Nicknack then kind of buggers off and goes back to Scaramanga, who is in a very tight one piece. <laughs> what would you call that thing? I was like, I want to call it pajamas, but that's not fair. It's like a like a is it like a tracksuit? I don't know. I guess tracksuit, yeah, but it's like one. Yeah, like a one piece thing. one. Yeah, just very tight. I'm like, okay, all right. We... <laughs> I didn't. I didn't dwell on the tightness. I'll be honest with you. <laughs> Okay, well, they started it with the nipple stuff. Like, All right, they okay. they put that in my head. I'm going to take a look at Christopher <laughs> Lee, if they're going to put him in that. I mean, he's a big man, all right? Oh, well, that's also very true. He's very tall. <laughs> so, yeah, so this man goes into this kind of room. Again, I think it's still a fancy room with his gun. And I think, I think Scaramanga's there, but then the lighting all goes red. And Nicknack is watching and moving stuff behind the scenes. And Scaramanga then just kind of rolls away from the guy. So it just basically seems like this guy is here to shoot and kill Scaramanga. And he rolls off. He then throws something at him, jumps away, and eventually gets to this closet of guns. Like Scaramanga, in his own base, gets to this closet of guns, but it's locked. Mm. And can't get any of the guns. Of which Nicknack's like, no, no, no. Monsieur, you're not getting them that easily. So it's like Nicknack is testing Scaramanga, fighting up against this guy. Um, so I think then Scaramanga just kind of buggers off and goes to hide. And the man in black, you know, the, the gangster guy, kind of enters this room. He sees this like glass which has Scaramanga's face on it and he shoots it. And then this like manic laughing is in the background, which I think is supposed to be knickknack probably yeah yeah i think so and this is like the beginning of is it called the fun house like scaramanga's fun house yeah i think yeah fun house i just know there was a video game that had a level based on this and i think that was called fun house yeah i think it was one of the like um it was like the golden eye version of uh like is it like the source engine or something like that and they they're one of the levels I, i remember like one of them was the scaramanga one so that was kind of cool and i think maybe yeah one of the ps2 ones i remember having this as a multiplayer level oh yeah i think nightfire might have done but uh ah yeah but yeah so the man enters this fun house basically there's these crooked doors and things like that and nick knack is kind of watching everything all on the cameras and there's a spooky skeleton that pops out and Ah. gives him a good old spook Uh, and so this guy is very slowly going through this with his gun, just being very cautious, trying to find Scaramanga. And then a cowboy rolls out behind these saloon doors, and it's a fake dude, but he's firing his gun. And then we see a load of fake American gangsters come out and shoots everyone, of, or starts shooting, of which the guy then reacts and shoots off one of his arms. And he said something. But I couldn't understand what he was saying. I think he like apologizes to them. Yeah, it's quite weird. He just starts talking to this Al Capone statue. I, I don't quite get it. Yeah, I, he, I think my notes say don't hold it against me or something. I don't know. It seems it's just something on. I didn't get. Well, have you got time to stop and talk to <laughs> a mannequin when there's someone trying to kill you? Yeah, I don't know. It's Americans, eh? Yeah. Uh, so then we see Scaramanga peeking. <laughs> I do. I also want a compilation of Bond films and people peeking behind a curtain. 
or going round the side and having a quick look. That is something that we also see all the time in these ones. Yeah, as we're doing these as the, like these rankings, it is becoming these little things that just you keep seeing over and over again. Yeah. And I think that kind of as we go, we'll realize that. And it might not be all the films that are like this, but this one more than ever is the one where you notice all the Bond kind of cliches and stuff like that. Not necessarily always a bad thing, but this one is the one where it really kind of was like, oh yeah, all this stuff we've seen before. Okay, cool. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but then, yeah, Scaramango is watching and Nick Knack over the mic says, oh, the golden gun. You got to go get the golden gun. And we see that the golden gun is in a, I think a raven's mouth. It might be a, a crow potentially, but some sort of black bird stuffed mm. um, so Scaramanga sees it goes to grab it but it's like a mirror or a fake Nick Knack starts laughing at him again but Scaramanga eventually finds the real one and the man in black is nearby and Scaramanga needs to go and get the gun so there's stairs nearby so he hits a button to turn them into slide into a slide super fun happy slide jumps on them slides down grabs the gun and then shoots the guy in the head which i don't know of what benefit the slide was (laughs) like the slide i wish he didn't slide because he looks stupid (laughs) he's too tall to be sliding on a slide yeah and it's such a tiny little slide as well it's just it was yeah i think up until this point i i was i I mean it didn't ruin it but I, i was quite liking where this was going um you know, all the weird stuff that's going on. And, and this is something that we've not really seen before in a Bond film, all this this sort of scenery and weirdness, like general weirdness like this with the Capone and the skeleton. And I like some of the mirror work that they had in these shots, um, rotating mirrors, kind of clever camera work and things like that. And and then it ends with him like, yeah, really awkwardly sliding down this tiny little set of stairs that are now a slide. And it's like, oh, okay, that's how he's going to take out the goon. Fine. It's a great stunt, though. One of the better stunts in the Guy the, Hamilton era. One of the very few stunts in this film, to be honest. <laughs> it's it's up there in terms of yeah. the better ones. Uh, so, yeah, so he shoots the guy. And then we see a fake model of Roger Moore as James Bond. Uh, Nick Nack takes the money off the guy that he paid him previously. And then Scaramanga shoots off the fingers of the James Bond doll. And then that kind of wraps this up and... Yeah, overall, as you were kind of saying, the atmosphere of this kind of sequence, and it is quite slow paced, but it kind of does it in a way to its advantage. Like you are just going, you're following this guy going through this fun house. And because it's the very start of the film, you don't really know what to expect. So even though it's all kind of a bit silly, there is actually a really good tension with this scene. And this whole scene also does something I really like, which the last film did, which is they're showing you something now so they can reference something later in the film. And I always really like that payoff. Like, I actually really enjoy that kind of formula for these sort of opening sequences. So overall, I did actually quite enjoy it. Uh, I quite enjoyed the last one, I think. Uh, But this one was actually quite a good time. It's a nice way to set up Scaramanga and just have something a little bit different which isn't a big explosive action scene, but kind of works on its own. Yeah, it's still it's still a, a tense scene, as you say. I, I really liked it too. I can even forgive the awkward slide. Um, and you're right, like the payoff that you get for this is is definitely is definitely worth it. Because and also just like if you're watching this in the cinema, 
and and this was the first time you were seeing it and you just see bond there like it's a statue of bond it's like what the hell, what the hell's going on like that actually makes you kind of huh moment so it's it's a that's what it needs to for the beginning of the film oh definitely yeah it's just a great mix of being a standalone interesting scene while also establishing stuff to being up later in the film and Scaramanga, like having it focused just on him and nothing to do with Bond is kind of really smart as well. I think, as you said about Goldfinger being introduced straight away, they kind of do this here, but you get a scene with just Scaramanga and Knickknack doing stuff. And I think that's actually really interesting just to see the villains doing something. And then at the very end, they tie it to Bond. Like, I like that, uh, the way that plays out. Yeah, yeah. It reminds me of From Russia of Love, kind of. Um, well... I mean, Bond was in that the whole way, but like just that payoff at the end, that sort of surprise shock moment. That's that's what I really liked. Um, mm. Unfortunately, I say unfortunately because I think when it leads into the title sequence, I thought this title sequence was really bad, <laughs> <laughs> really bad. So so basically, yeah, it goes into um, you know, Roger Moore and all that sort of stuff. But in terms of like theming, I know we said in Never Let Die, I think it, we were both in agreement that although although it was um had some interesting shots with the skulls and fire having that sort of black background and and the those elements is getting a little bit repetitive and this one is just more, even more of that but without the interesting skulls and flames this is basically just um r- reflections and ripples of water with with the names and credits reflected in them and it really is just that for the whole thing. I can't really think of anything too interesting from this title sequence. And what really gets me is that having just watched what you've watched, they were so well set up to have some really cool, interesting visuals with mirrors and lights and all sorts of weird things like from the funhouse. I think that would have been a really cool thing to go down um, visually. But no, it's instead it's just reflected water, which... I couldn't really quite understand the connection to the film. To you're so right. I never thought about that, but you're right. Like a fun house styled opening, it would have matched the song quite well as yeah. well due to the energy it brings. That would have been amazing if they did yeah. that. Sadly, sadly not. But I, yeah, I don't understand. I feel like this is a monkey paw moment where last week and I said about how I'm kind of sick of the black backgrounds and Live and Let Die did have the strong theming but I want something a bit different and this one changes the backgrounds by having this kind of water ripple effect and then just strips away all the strong feeling it's like oh I can't have both can I kind of <laughs> strong visual identity and just not the standard black backgrounds because I would yeah. say yeah they have mixed up the backgrounds but yeah it's just water it's water and then women being reflected in the water, and then a golden gun being shown. Yeah. And just none of it kind of matches or blends together at all. There's just no theming here that's interesting. Nope. No, not not, uh, not a fan. I mean, the best moment, and it, really it doesn't match anything else, is where they zoom in on this woman, then at the very end they impose a skull over her face. Do, oh, I must have missed that bit. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's very subtle. It's like quite a long zoom. It's like her, like kind of on her side looking at you. And then it kind of zooms in. And it's quite subtle, to be fair. But they, I, I'm pretty sure they do. Maybe I'm just crazy. But they like impose this slight skull. It's not very, you know, it's not like the live and their die skulls where it's on fire in your face. They just kind of add it on slightly. Oh, okay. Well, yeah, I still don't think that's enough. But I didn't, I must have completely missed that. Oh, well. 
There's a red firework as well, though, Joe. Don't forget the red firework. Oh, yeah. I sadly missed the, the fiber optic, uh, you know, uh, brushy thing. Where was that? Why couldn't that make a comeback? They didn't have the budget for it. <laughs> they could only hire that for one film. Yeah, it's like, we've got a firework instead. That's, that's what we can afford. <laughs> oh. But what about the song, Joe? Okay, so the song... I... A lot of people, a lot of people don't like this song. Well, that's the, that's the impression I get uh, in terms of like the Bond fandom and community. I don't think it's that bad. I think a lot of people cr- criticize maybe the lyrics of it, and they say like the lyrics are kind of stupid because it's like very overt, even for a Bond song. You know, like uh, what's the line? What is the line? Um, Who will he bang? Right, you, like, <laughs> so it's like, yeah, okay, that's kind of a bit, but I mean, really, no, no, no Bond song has had amazing lyrics. Like to me, it's just how they sound and how like they make you feel for the beginning of the film. Um, and I think this one actually sounds pretty good. I, I kind of like the tone of it, and although we do hear this a lot, kind of like similar to Live and Let Die, where it's it's used a lot in the instrumentals and things and the soundtrack, I think it's a good starting point. Yeah. Uh I'm not a big fan of it. No? Maybe I'm representing most people. I'm really not too sure. This is a theme I never really hear about, you know? It's like people might bring up the Madonna one, Die Another Day, and just say, oh, what a terrible, what's going on here? I can't believe it, blah, blah, blah. And then other ones for being good. This one I feel like just so sits in the middle that it kind of gets forgotten. Uh, A little bit like the rest of the film, you can argue. Uh, But this one just kind of just does nothing for me. Like, it's quite a different style compared to any other type of film because it is more bouncy and upbeat in a lot of ways. And Lulu's clearly having a lot of fun, and I'm happy for her. Uh, I just don't... It just doesn't do anything for me. Like, I don't really hate it, but it's not a song I'd ever listen to. And So I guess an interesting fact about this film, just kind of talking about the music. So John Barry is back for this one. And part of John Barry's job is writing the themes. So, of course, Paul McCartney handled it last time. And I think George Martin probably helped. But, you know, obviously it's probably just Paul McCartney doing it. But John Barry writes the themes with the artists, uh, which happened for this one. But he only had three weeks to do the music for this film. Oh, my God. Three weeks? Yeah. So he kind of rushed it. And there's a lot of stuff that you can read about it where he says, this was my worst film musically. I only had three weeks. There's a lot of stuff I regret. A certain stunt and sound effects that plays. He says, terrible. I don't know why I did it. Definitely wouldn't do it (laughs) if I had to do it again. And I think the theme, this theme kind of does reflect that kind of a bit rushed sort of feel. Um, Because it doesn't really have that strong of a hook. Like it does have a hook, but not that strong of a hook. And it doesn't really... I mean, the main riff at the start's pretty good. That's not too bad, but... Yeah, again, it just doesn't really have that killer kind of edge. And I think the fact it was rushed is probably part of that. Yeah, I mean, that does kind of add up because I I think, although I do like the main theme, theme really, I I think the rest of the film soundtrack is a bit lacking and the music is not really one of the standout points for me for this film. So (laughs) saying that he had three weeks to do it, yeah, that that adds up. Hmm. There was definitely some stuff I like about this soundtrack, though. Um, I wasn't too negative on it, but I think... You really hear it in the themes when they're rushed, like a certain another way, to, another way to die. <laughs> oh, don't remind me of that song, jeez. Yeah, <laughs> um, when it's rushed, you kind of feel it. So this one, for being rushed, it's not too bad, but just so 
to me just so whatever in terms of yeah. the theme. And eventually this well it ends. No more ripples, I'm afraid. We got a film to get to. And this time we cut to Bond entering M's office. Yeah, no more no Bond. time wasted. Yeah, no robes. No JB on the robes. <laughs> sadly. Oh, I forgot about the robes. Yeah. No. Yeah, there's still robes in this film, don't worry, but not not as many as the last one, I don't think. Mm, different sorts of robes, yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so Bond enters M's office, so we get a more traditional scene. What was the last time we got Bond going into the office and getting briefed in this way? That's a good question, to be honest. I mean, yeah, I guess the last couple of times they've been... Oh, no, I guess Diamonds Are Forever did do it, didn't he? Because there was the Diamond guy who came and explained the situation. Yeah, yeah, I suppose that does count, yeah. Yeah, we do see this office, but it does feel like because they've kept like, it's really nice to see it again because they keep doing differences, like in the last film and when they were in the submarine and things like that. But it's like, oh, it's, they should have done this last time. But it is really nice to see Roger Moore as Bond just entering M's office and do the more standard briefing like this. Yeah, I think the fact that we didn't have it last time uh, and the same with Q as well, when we see Q later on, it makes this all the better because it's like, OK, now we're back we're back to normal. Live and let die. They were getting, they were, you know, trying new things, getting Roger in. And now, like, yeah, they know that that's what people want to see. Yeah, 100%. So Bond enters and there's a couple of guys with him uh, who are kind of in the background. And M asking, what do you know about Scaramanga? And we get some great acting here from Roger. I always like these moments <laughs> where he's like, hmm, let me think. Ah, yes. <laughs> then goes, like, recites a massive amount of information explaining his entire backstory and life and what Scaramanga is all about off the top of his head. It's a bit much. <laughs> it is a bit much. It's a bit I much, get the, but I like I get, it. I get the joke they're trying to do, yeah. It is a bit much. And um, I, I, I got to say, like straight off the bat with Roger Moore, compared to Live and Let Die, I just feel like, even though it was just a year later, for me, there's just something about his performance in this film that just clicks with me a lot better than live and let die did and i think he just you can you can really feel the comfort of him being in this role or at least for me compared to the first film uh, and like yeah that's really evident even straight away with this this end briefing scene he just loves doing those things that sean connery did this as well being the expert on everything but they do it multiple times in this film and you can just see in the same way that like sean connery loved doing the fake oh, I'm this person now and getting into it. Roger Moore just loves acting it up and hamming up the whole, like, mm, I'm the expert and here's all the information I know. He is good at hamming. I'll give him that. He's a hammer. Mm-hmm. So I didn't write down all the information because he says so much in such a short amount of time. There's just no way you can retain it all. I think roughly he was raised in a circus and then eventually was a K... What's it called? The Russian agent? What's it called again? I'm surprised KBJ. you're even trying to do this. To be honest with you, like I didn't take it. I didn't take aboard any of this. Uh, KGB. KGB. That's the one. K, KGB. Uh, he was an ex uh, KBG agent, and now he's an assassin who charges one million dollars for every hit that he does. And then he's like, ah, he's also got a third nipple, which <laughs> everyone know. knows about it. Way ahead of you there, Bond. Yeah, we've already seen. We've, seen We've been introduced. 
uh, yeah. So M then, after not being impressed, of course, uh, hands Bond this golden bullet, which was sent to MI6, addressed to James Bond, and it has 007 written on it. Uh, which then we get a great little line where Bond is all like, who would pay one million to have me killed? And M's just like, disgruntled husbands, <laughs> annoying tailors. <laughs> I can think of many people. Yeah, that's great. I love that little bit. Oh, M just has not lost his touch. I think there's there's not been one where M's stuff of just being annoyed with Bond. And this might be the most in this film he gets annoyed with Bond and just kind of pretty much insults him. Yeah, I don't know. I I think there's like as we see in this in later on in the scene, there's a little twinkle in his eyes still. Like he gets an older Bond, but you know he he likes him really deep down. Sure, it just seems like he goes more more all in on some of these. Hmm. And M says, "Well, Scaramanga sent the bullet for you, so you're a target. So you can no longer do your current assignment." Of which they quite specifically explain what the assignment is, which is, well, there's an energy crisis and what am I going to do about Gibson and the solar cell data stuff? Uh, Which is quite important. Initially, you might think, yeah, whatever, he's talking about solar energy. But it does come back. Uh, His old assignment is relevant to all of this, which is why they specifically drop it in this scene. Yeah, it's definitely something easy to miss. Um, I, I remember, like as we get on later in the film, I had to think like, "Oh, that's what that was referencing." So, yeah, it's it's a little detail, but as you say, it makes a big big part of the plot. Definitely. So this leads on Bond. Basically, M saying you got to take time off. He was like, "You can either resign or I'll let you take some sabbatical." And Bond is kind of a bit confused by this, but he kind of starts figuring out what's going on, and he's like. Well, if I found Scaramanga first, would that change things? And M is like, it might change the situation. Of which you get a big old grin off Bond. Because basically M is saying you can go on sabbatical and no longer worth this case to basically be free to go investigate what's going on with Scaramanga. So he doesn't directly say it, but you can tell with the way Bond reacts to it and the way M is that, yeah, M does have Bond's back here. He's letting him do... Officially, he's just saying, you're a liability, bugger off. But really, he's allowing him to go and pursue uh, Scaramanga. Yeah, he's being a little bit coy. Like, well, I'll never tell. Oh, whatever you do, Bond, is up to you sort of thing, which I, I like. It sort of has that element of... Um, shows the bond between the characters, right? Because there's an element of trust there. Mm, yeah, it's really nice. I'm going to be really sad when Bernard Lee stops appearing in these films. I can't remember which one it is, but that's going to be a sad, oh. sad podcast when we'd have to do that. Yeah, it's Moonraker is his last one. How is I, it? I can even think of the scene, which is his last one, which is actually not too dissimilar in what, what we're discussing. So is it is in space? Sad. <laughs> he, gets, he gets shot by a laser. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's in Venice. But anyway, we'll get, we'll get there. Okay, we'll get that. Uh, yeah, so this leads to Bond then leaving the office and going to see Money Penny. It is the one hundred percent traditional Money Penny scene, and maybe it was just me, but is Money Penny starting to look a bit old? Well, I I wrote down this is my notes like straight off the page. Money Penny glasses. Ooh, oh <laughs> no, those glasses are not are not doing her any favors because the second she takes them off, she looks she looks great. 
But they, she's got old lady glasses on at the beginning of the scene. And it's like, no, take them off. Take them off. <laughs> I was thinking it probably is the glasses. I was like, is it the hair? Her hair's a bit different, but maybe that's a bit harsh. But they're giving her a bit more of a old secretary vibes than they used to for this. Hmm. Yeah, I, I don't know. I think um, I, I didn't quite get that yet. Later on, as they all age and they're kind of like, they all started to look a bit old. Yeah, I think for now I'm all right. And especially because, I mean, it's difficult to compare sort of like the relationship between the Bond actors and, and Money Penny. Like Sean, Sean was always quite good with the Money Penny scenes. Uh, but I do think Roger's probably, this is just my memory, so we'll see when we actually watch the later films. But I think Roger's probably a little bit better. I do, I do like the scenes between Roger and, and Money Penny. Oh, would you say that's true for this scene between them as well? Yeah, I, I like this one. Yeah. I like the ending bit. Yeah. Because a lot of this is just actually them talking about the mission. I'm like, what's going on here? They're actually <laughs> talking about Scaramanga and Bond's trying to get information out of Money Penny. What? That's not yeah. right. I know, right? She's actually doing her job. Hey, now. <laughs> I mean, I'm not blaming her for it. That's Bond who just comes out and just starts being all a big old flirt. But like we actually get like thirty seconds of them talking like actual operatives exchanging info. Yeah, no marriage talk or anything like that quite yet. So yeah, so basically it's Bond asking about somebody who was killed. Uh I think William Fairbanks, I think, is the name. Yeah, double O two. Double was it double O two? Yeah, I think it's a double O two. Oh, I missed that entirely. Yeah. Oh, that's kinda nuts. Hmm. Oh, top of the list. Top of the list. Uh, so, yeah, so 002, uh, William Fairbanks and Money Penny just basically says where he died and, and how he died. And Roger then calls her darling. I can't remember exactly what he says, but he talks about, like, how come they weren't able to trace it or something like that and calls her darling, of which she instantly comes back and is like, they couldn't find the bullet darling <laughs> <laughs> i love that moment specifically because of what we mentioned in the last podcast where roger moore just i don't think it appears any like as much now because they kind of call it out on screen but last film there was so many darlings and i just love that like they they realize that and they make money penny kind of yeah kind of butt heads a little bit with that oh she's just the perfect character to do isn't he there's no one better to just kind of mock bond for the things he say than money penny doing it yeah, especially with what yeah, especially with the word "darling" as well, which is quite sometimes is quite um, yeah, not the not the nicest. I guess so. I mean, he still says "darling" in the film, and I do like Roger Moore saying "darling," but yeah, they were aware of it. They made a joke about it. He still says it, but it's like way, way more toned down, and I'm assuming toned down for the rest of his run as well. Yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't seem quite as patronizing as it did before, maybe. Um, but he, that's just a, a word that he likes. Hmm. So basically, Money Penny says that Fairbanks was last seen in Beirut in a cabaret. So we cut to a cabaret, <laughs> like straight. This is what I mean with those like harsh shots and harsh cuts, because you just cut straight to um, basically seeing the bullet in question. What Bond was just asking about. There's no trace of the bullet. You see it right there on screen. Uh, it's in the belly button of a belly dancer um, who Bond is sitting and watching in this in this cabaret in this club. And you just get a little bit of this woman dancing and it's like, okay, that's a nice dance, I suppose. <laughs> Bond enjoying his cigar. He's still on the cigars. 
hasn't gone back to cigarettes quite yet. And all whilst this is happening, you get sort of these angry-looking men, these shots of these angry-looking... Well, particularly one big, bald, angry-looking man who's watching Bond. And I don't I don't think it's really ever explained who these people are. I guess they just don't like Bond being there. Um, yeah, I think they, Bond they... just stands out and is basically getting a, a private belly dance from this woman. Yeah. And just like, damn you, sexy yeah. Roger. <laughs> so... Um, yeah, that's quite, sort of set up them as the, as some bad guys straight away. But after after she's finished, she goes into her dressing room and and Bond just straight up follows her. There's like no no um, no waiting around, no sneaking in. Just walks in and hello, hello, darling, probably, um, and starts to talk to her about Bill Fairbanks and and what she knew of where he was when he was killed. And they do start to get into this a little bit about um like the bullet and why they can never find the bullet and how she keeps it as a lucky charm now as a belly button um i don't even know what it is really it's just like a little not a piercing or anything because he sucks it out eventually it's just just sits there um and it doesn't really last long though because this whole this whole scene as who would have thought it very quickly turns into a bit of flirtiness and um a bit of bit of romancing although it is it is with a purpose at least because you can tell like bond is he's spotted the the bullet and he, he wants it so he keeps getting it and she keeps slapping him away as they're as they're kissing and so starts to kiss her belly and like trying to get it that way and one of the things this film has which comes up quite a lot is that like it's it's definitely more Bond films have always had comedic elements to them, but I think this is one of the ones where it really like goes in and you can start to see that every scene more or less has a little comedy bit to it, um, or at least at least more than ever before. Uh, and in this case, the scene is where he's just about to try and grab the belly, uh, the, the gold bullet out of the belly, uh, her belly button and um, the angry men come in behind and give him a whack and that causes him to like accidentally swallow it. And you get this sort of like really we're talking about Roger Morby and Hammy, like his eyes bulging as he's just swallowed this uh, bit of gold, and it very quickly gets into a little fight scene between these um, these guys. And I kind of last podcast I said I didn't quite find Roger Moore very good in these fight scenes, um, which is why they didn't really try and do too many. I think this one straight off the bat, I think this one's a lot better. I think this one he seems a bit more believable in actually being uh, a tougher guy. I think. Partly because he's maybe not quite as uh, like preen and and tailored perfectly, um, you know. The jacket flies open. There's like smashing and everything like that. And also because like, by the end of the scene, he's actually bleeding, which is like quite a like. Oh, actually, he did get hurt in this. Like he actually did get attacked and he's bleeding from it. So yeah, I think this whole little fight scene. It's really it's really not much at all, right? There's no interesting ways out of it there's nothing really interesting in the way he deals with these these villains but I, I kind of the whole scene itself i liked roger moore being a bit more believable as bond in this regard well this film in general does the same thing as live and let die where they just don't focus on physical fights so much you just don't get many of them but this one feels like they did focus on it a bit more although i can't like there might be one more in the entire film well there's one main scene in a certain dojo or something but that's again a bit different 
Mm. Uh, so this is the only kind of traditional Bond versus Goon ones. And I agree. I actually quite like this one. I actually thought it was quite solid. I think the fact that Bond kind of loses for most of it is more of an even fight, makes it a little bit more believable. Yeah. It's not just Bond overpowering three guys. They throw him around. He gets hit a lot. We got a lot of judo chops in this scene. Oh, yeah. And we get the old move that I don't understand. The old, I think, like, you hold your hand and then, like, throw your elbow into someone. Like, we get a lot of that. Yeah, I think I know what you're referring to. Yeah. Yeah, just some weird elbow moves. So we get these, like, clearly fake moves. So it's not supposed to be, like, intense and a proper physical fight. But, yeah, I think the fact that they lean into Roger being a bit more of a... Not a clumsy Bond, because that's not fair, but someone who's kind of losing but still finds a way to pull it out at the end is probably a much better style uh, for all of this. Because Bond gets, like, smashed with a glass bottle and stuff. And... Yeah. Uh, but yeah it's it's nice i think it's a solid little fight scene and there's some quite nice shots as well where there's one where they just kind of they lean on well they have one shot that's quite continuous for a good portion of this where they just keep panning left and right as the characters are being thrown across the the room and it kind of makes you feel it a little bit more than what they normally do which is just showing being thrown and then cut to a different angle or then cut to a different one but this one you actually kind of see a bit more of the back and forth um so yeah it's, it's actually pretty good yeah yeah, I did like it. It was, uh, as we've said, there's, I don't think there's really <clears throat> stunt-wise in this film. Stunts aren't amazing. This isn't really a stunt, but it's it's still something uh, to get the film going, which I liked. Yeah, nice and simple, but effective. Yeah. Uh, but outside, basically, uh, after knocking out the free gentleman and having the bullet inside him i guess mm-hmm. yeah uh, there's a big gang of people trying to get in they're like oh blah blah blah, blah we're gonna rubble 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 uh and the door is blocked by the the bald man so bond just goes around the back and leaves and the woman's like where's my charm gone and he bond finds a taxi and the guy's like you want to go to the hotel mister and he's like no take me to the nearest pharmacy <laughs> <laughs> which yeah, we don't then cut to a pharmacy, but it was quite a, a nice little, you know, meant to be kind of funny, I guess, but a nice little nod to this idea that they were clearly leaning heavily into of, yeah, Bond got kind of injured in this fight, not in a super serious way, but like, yeah, he's not doing well. He's got blood coming out of his mouth. He needs to go and get some meds or something. Well, I read it as that he also needs to get that out of his system so oh yeah of course <laughs> he needs something to yeah make it pass through ah uh, yeah that yeah i guess yeah that's probably more what they were going for <laughs> which is which is like a little gag in itself really yeah just the image of bond like on the toilet <laughs> oh no no i don't know <laughs> no i mean it's not a nice thing is that to do especially because then you have to, have to pass it on to q and all that yeah let's not think about that yeah, they didn't include that in this film. I don't know if you check the deleted scenes, because I know <laughs> no. you like to. <laughs> there was nothing like that, thankfully. Hmm, that's good. So after that little fight scene, we cut straight to Bond in the Q branch with Q and I think it was the same guy we saw in M's office, maybe? I don't know, they all look the same, these men. Yeah, he has like a, a, yeah, he has this moustache man who's just consistent, like Q's assistant but he doesn't really say much. He's just kind of always there sometimes. And he was in yeah. the office, now he's here. And you see him later in the film as well, which is always there for some reason. Yeah. Um, and they are investigating the bullet that Bond has now got for them. And, and they're kind of looking at it through a microscope and they've been doing uh, tests on it to kind of trace the bullet using 
you know, what it's made of and like gold and I think nickels in there and all that sort of stuff. And um, trying to kind of guess where it's from. All while this is happening, there's like a, I was going to say there's like a, a joke happening in the background, like a visual joke, because, you know, Rinku branch is going to be something that happens, something's going to explode or some wacky thing in the background. But to me, all that happens is they just blow a hole in this wall. Like There's a brick wall behind them. And then over the course of the scene, it just blows up. I didn't actually spot if there was a gag involved with that. I didn't see a gag. Because at some point as they're talking, they hear an explosion, look to see a wall destroyed, and then just get back to it. Yeah, like you'd expect it to be, I don't know, someone being like ejected from something, or like it's a a boombox. Actually, that's a later film, never mind. Um, Maybe a sandwich or something, maybe some sort of sandwich (laughs) gag. Lunch, yes, yes, that would be a good part. Uh, Anyway, that's besides the point. So what they're actually talking about. Can't wait till we get to that gag, can't wait. (laughs) That's just going to be the whole podcast. Yeah. Um, what they're actually talking about in the scene is yeah, tracing the bullet, and so they can they can work out that it's like a four point two millimeter gun, and Bond's very quickly kind of like you know, Bond always likes to be right, and he's like, oh, there's no such thing as a four point two millimeter gun, and kind of explain to him that you know it's probably a an unregistered gun, it's like a custom made thing, and um, that's why it's difficult to track and trace, and then using yeah, using the component like the alloy, they can these two men Q and this other guy. I think his name, I did write down his name. His name is Colthorpe. Oh, okay. Uh, they kind of discuss it and eventually work out that it's probably from some guy called Lazar, who is a bullet maker in Macau, um, which is where Bond's going to head to next. And I do kind of like this scene because <laughs> this is going to sound kind of cheesy, but I kind of liked that Q had someone to sort of like geek out with. <laughs> like Q's always just been there talking to M about something or talking to Bond. You know, Bond doesn't care about the gadgets or doesn't care about them, right? You know, he was saying, bring them back in one piece sort of thing. Whereas, you know, Q's there and he's like, oh, that's a good idea, Cole Thorpe, or mm, maybe. And it's like, oh, Q's got, you know, Q has got some friends. It's not just it's not just who we've seen before, like M and Bond. There are more. Hmm, well, Bond was like the third or the odd man out, really, in yeah. that scene. Because yeah. they were both very excited and interested in this bullet and figuring it out, and Bond's just kind of awkwardly standing there waiting for them to get to that point. And they just kind of, yeah, Bond is usually the knowledgeable person, but he just kind of actually doesn't know. Because they say Lazar, and he was like, Who's Lazar? And it's like, The chap who made the bullet, 007. It's, yeah. <laughs> it's <laughs> exasperated. Yeah. yeah. But we see Q a few times in this film, and it, it's really nice. Like, I, it's really nice we're back in Q Lab, even if it's for quite a simple and basic scene. Like they are making a very conscious effort to bring back all those kind of old familiar elements, even though we've probably only seen Kula properly once before this point. This might yeah. be the second time ever. Yeah. I mean, yeah, we would have seen it in Goldfinger, but then what else? I think there might have been a shot of it with Q on the phone or something, but uh, actually yeah. Bond going to it, I think this is the second time ever we've seen this kind of underground concrete base where they're testing stuff. Wow. Yeah, it's very odd. But yeah, there's a real effort for that in this film. And I kind of, kind of do appreciate that. It's quite interesting that we get that for the second Roger Moore film. You feel like a lot of this stuff should have been in Live and Let Die. Um, so yeah, it's interesting. Mm. Yeah, and it's, yeah, as you say, it's nice to see Bond not be not be the smartest one in the room and actually being uh, kind of put in his place by these two. So... Yes, so now Bond has a name, Lazar, a bullet maker, and where did you say this this guy was? 
Uh, I thought it was Macau. I, I have no idea. Like, I have no idea. What, I completely missed it. So basically, this film is largely uh, takes place in Asia and different countries in Asia. But as you mentioned before, like with the opening scene and stuff, they just kind of cut to these places. Yeah. So some of them they do set up and they do usually mention what it is, but it's so, so easy to miss. And because I don't know the, the continent too well, there's a lot of times where I was just like, oh, it's just someplace in Asia. I don't actually know where this is, which, and this was one of them. There's no helpful wording, you know, like the last film. We're just left to our own devices. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but in case you couldn't tell we were in Asia, uh, we get a, a remix of the Bond theme, which has some of those Asian, uh, Asian kind of elements. Mm. Uh, I, I kind of liked it. I felt like we've heard it before with the You Only Live Twice. I think I might have liked this one a bit better because it felt a little bit more, maybe not subtle because it's not. <laughs> um, but I don't know. It, it didn't bother me so much. It was Maybe it's because it was earlier in the film and it was just Bond visiting an Asian place. But uh, I'm assuming some of this is because John Barry was like, oh, I need to write some Asian music, right? Give me, give me an Asian instrument. I'll just play the Bond theme on it. There we go. Done. Okay, cool. Well, Next scene. Yeah, I mean, if you had three weeks to do it, I'd, I'd do the same. Yeah. Although I think we get more original music in this film than Live and Let Die. Do you think so? I don't know. <laughs> that sounds right. Or, or like, so as you mentioned, the Man with the Golden Gun theme is used in this track or in this score, but it feels like we got more different variety of tracks in this one than the last one just because they didn't play the theme all the time yeah i do what you're probably right with that yeah but now bond is in this place uh and goes up to this store and there's a family eating uh, a mum and two kids eating a load of noodles and he does his confidence <laughs> just overconfident act of just speaking in pure english and just being like, hello, I'm James Bond. I'm looking for a bullet maker called Lazar. Maybe you've heard of him. And they just stare blankly at him, just not interested. Um, I get the opinion, or I get the impression that they probably do understand him. And it's more just like, we do not care about this English man who's just so full of himself. Um, <laughs> yeah, they just, they, they just want to get back to their noodles. Yeah, it's pure comedy with the way they're all eating noodles quickly and then stop. And then once Bond leaves, they start quickly eating noodles again. But I can get behind these smaller moments. It's it's the same type of comedy we saw in Live and Let Die of Bond being out of his element, only rather than being in Harlem, now he's in this Asian kind of back alley shop. Yep. And I guess, you know, we've although Bond knows Japanese, he did not learn Chinese. We we didn't get he needs that book now from Money Penny. Like yeah, they didn't cover it in Oriental languages. <laughs> no. Of course. Sadly not. He skipped that day. So, yeah, so basically while he's asking these people, uh, a man comes out, and it's Lazar. And he's very happy to see Bond. He said, come in, come in, your reputation precedes you, and says it would be the proudest moment of my career to make you a, a gun and, and bullet and things like that. So Lazar knows who Bond is and is very happy that he's here, and it just assumes he wants some, some guns and, and bullets. So Lazar shows off or shows Bond a rifle that he has set up at a range, asks Bond to fire the gun, of which he slightly misses the bullseye. And Bond's like, that's slightly off. And the guy was saying, like, yes, it's intentionally slightly off because I made it for someone with two fingers, uh, because I, I special make all my, my guns uh, like this. 
mm. which then leads to Bond just asking like, hey, I'm looking for ammunition. Maybe some gold bullets, huh? Again, not so subtly <laughs> get trying to get information. Yeah, I could yeah, you can you can just picture the eyebrow raise with that. <laughs> it's just right there. Mm. And uh, straight away then to Scaramanga, like I'm looking for gold bullets and I wanna I, I think you make him bullets. And Bond starts leaning on the gun, the rifle that's set up, while Lazar's like, I can't do that. I can't tell you anything. And well, there's also a thing about Bond being an assassin and things like that. And Bond kind of challenges him, like saying, oh, do you, you know, about making these bullets and guns and stuff. And he's just like, well, bullets don't kill people. It's it's up to people what they kind of do, want to do. Yeah. But eventually Bond, he's not giving him information. So Bond points the gun and is like, I'm aiming at your groin. Uh, so you better tell me what I need to know. Of which Lazar saying, like, I don't know the guy. So one thing about Scaramango that I don't think I mentioned or we mentioned before is that no one knows what he looks like, which is a little bit odd because they have this whole trait of like, what does Scaramango look like? Nobody knows. He could be anyone. But the whole film starts off with you just seeing him clear as day and quite a lot. So I felt like there's a little bit of a mishmash between the way that he's perceived in the world of no one knows what he even looks like is a shadow and the film just kind of like, yeah, there he is. Like, they, they make no effort to kind of try and hide his identity and, and play into that idea of him being very well hidden. Yeah, that's a that's a really good point. Because um, I'm just trying to picture, like, if they had gone down that route, let's say they'd done the intro of the film a bit differently where, I don't know, they never fully revealed his face or something. Like, that would have been pretty cool to have later on in the film, not knowing who might be watching Bond sort of thing. Um Obviously, it's Christopher Lee, so they're going to want to show him straight away because he's a big star. But yeah, that is true. They they don't know what he looks like, but they all everyone seems to know he has a third nipple. <laughs> yeah, he leaked that out. <laughs> he's proud. Yeah, but I do like the approach they took in terms of we get to see a lot of Christopher Lee as Garamanga. Like that's great. Like they take advantage of it. It's just uh, yeah, maybe it's because of the book it was like that way, but yeah, just a bit of a mismatch. It just doesn't quite work so well. You don't buy the way people kind of talk about him just because it's like, yeah, he's the nipple guy. I, I know, I know that. Dude. <laughs> the man with the third nipple. Yeah, that's there. We go. Fixed it. Done. Lulu's on board. She'll do oh. an alternative version. In fact, she's right here to sing it now. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Lulu. <laughs> Uh, yes. See you later, Lulu. Back to the film. So, uh, Lazar <laughs> Bond is aiming a gun at Lazar's groin. He then fires, and then Bond's like, "You're right. It is a little bit off. It's just an inch too low." Of which, eventually, Lazar breaks and shows Bond the bullets, saying, "Here's the golden bullets that I've been asked to make for Scaramanga." And saying, "I never met meet anyone." He just says, "Or oh, he's been told to go to a casino and drop them off." So. We we cut to Bond and Lazar at a casino, where he exchanges the bullets. Yeah, I don't know. It's kind of. I mean, I guess it's a real casino, but it's kind of cool what they're doing, like with the, the little baskets that come down from like another floor, and then that's how they're doing the the drop off of the bullets, and then yeah, it's just kind of like a, that's one of the things I do like about this film is that, I mean, yes, we've had we've had you only live twice, which was similarly sort of you know set in Asia, but. This one is showing off different places, and I do like that it does go all in with 
with this setting and you do get a lot of cool locations like this and, and you know uh, nighttime shots with all the lights and stuff like that it's um it's it's nice and it's also a, a refreshing change from um forests and and jungles and stuff like we saw with live and let die uh and i think actually i, I think the book because there was you know this is based on the book even though heavily adapted i'm sure but i think the book was based in jamaica so it's like they wanted to avoid jamaica again so i'm glad they did that Oh, yeah, very smart. I complained so much about America before and it is really appreciated what they do here because it just takes place in a lot of different uh, Asian countries, basically. Mm. And it is really refreshing. Like, yes, they did Japan, but Asia is a huge place with lots of different kind of countries and cultures and things like that. So it's nice that they've gone back and they never go to Japan or anything like that. Instead, we get like Hong Kong and Thailand and stuff like that. And it, it helps separate it. I think the, the setting was maybe it's not as strong as, say, Japan was. Some of that just due to the way the film is shot and kind of presented. But yeah, it's refreshing. It's nice that they finally mixed it up for this one. Yeah. So in the casino, Bond watches uh, the, the drop off of the bullets and it's picked up by uh, this lady. This lady, it's the same lady that we saw at the beginning of the film uh, on the beach with Scaramanga. Uh, so he follows her and she eventually gets onto. Am I right in thinking these are called hydrofoils? I think there's, a, there's like a sign at some point in the film. No, I have no clue what a hydrofoil is. It looks like, like a bit like a hoverboat. But um, he gets onto uh, the hydrofoil and, and follows her and just keeps an eye on her. And this is a bit, a bit strange because like, then it's sort of you get the audio of um the i guess it's almost like a tour as well or something like someone's given all this information about where they're heading to which is uh hong kong harbor and on the way they're like pointing out all the stuff like on your left you'll see kowloon and on your right you'll see this and then one of the places that they point out is that there's this wreckage of uh, a ship that's called the queen elizabeth um which I had to. I mean, I was so curious about this. I was like, "Well, I've got to look this up afterwards." And yeah, like it did actually. That's a real ship that actually did sink there. And I guess when they were filming, it was still there. So they thought, "Let's let's include it in the plot somehow," which is kind of a cool idea because it does come back. Um, and so yeah, uh, the boat reaches to Hong Kong Harbor, and just as uh, she gets away, this lady who's picked up the bullets, just as she gets away um, in a taxi or in a car. Uh, and Bond's about to follow her in a taxi. We get the introduction uh, of Goodnight. Is that name Mary? Is it Mary Goodnight? Yeah, I don't know if they say it, but yeah, it Mary, Mary. Goodnight. Who I'm just gonna. I just really want to get this out. I was one uh, having finished watching this film. Like one of my notes was just like, this is one of the most annoying characters in the Bond franchise so far. Oh, what? If not the most annoying character to me. I'm really surprised. I thought if anyone on this planet would be a Mary Goodnight defender, I thought Joe. <laughs> I really? thought you would be it. I can't stand her in this film. Wow, that's surprising. I don't think she's the worst character, but she's definitely the most annoying character, or frustrating anyway. Um, so yeah, she shows up, and basically, I think I'm right in thinking she's a. Uh, she works for in like the mi6 she's like a she has like a intelligence post in in macau so she's basically bond's contact in this in this area of the world uh unfortunately <laughs> and um she's there and like gets in the way immediately like gets in the way of bond following uh the lady in this in this green rolls royce it turns out to be uh so 
Bond. And what what I kind of what's quite interesting about this is that immediately off the bat, yeah, like she's got in the way of Bond tailing this lady, and he's annoyed. But you you really get the sense that Bond just doesn't really like this lady straight away. She hasn't really even done that much, and he's so he's so like sharp with her. Um, and it it comes up later on as well, but that's because she makes lots of stupid decisions. So I don't blame him. I got the impression that they had worked together before. Yeah. So it does feel quite harsh because yeah, like you're right, Roger Moore or James Bond is just so annoyed at her like straight away, like instantly. Uh, and it is a little bit confusing because it seems like they have this established relationship, but they don't really do a very good job of kind of catching you up on it. You just get a lot of like good night being dumb and just kind of laughing uh, then bond just being annoyed but then bond just kind of switches away from that so it's like they're old friends but you don't quite get what that relationship is uh, but yeah, yeah straight totally. away like he's annoyed but she's just kind of rolls it off like there's some self-awareness there um that she did she did kind of mess up but she's like ha 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 oh james <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, and I do like I like that attempt of having some sort of history between the characters. I think you're right though. I don't think it's it's handled very well. That's I mean that's just how many times have we said that in these in these podcasts where it's a good idea but not really just it's not implemented very well because this is another example of it. I, I like the idea of seeing these past uh, past characters that Bond would have had contact with or flings with in this case. I don't know, but um, yeah, just. Just stupid, just annoying. Anyway, um, Bond asks her to phone in to trace a green Rolls Royce and she sort of laughs it off saying that um, a green Rolls Royce, like that's impossible sort of thing because it turns out that that's the company car of of one of the hotels in Hong Kong. So there's tons of them basically. But also they know exactly where the lady was going. I can't remember the name of the hotel, but this big fancy hotel where they eventually get to. And I think... I don't think it's ever really explained. I think Bond just goes up to uh, uh, like a doorman there and, and probably just uh, gives him a bit of money or something and, and gets some information about what room. I don't know how he exactly worked out what room she's in, but um, he manages to find her room in this hotel. I think he leaves He leaves goodnight in the car. I don't know what he says to her. Probably something rude. <laughs> probably something where he's being annoyed with her. Uh, but yeah, he's he's off to go and try and find this woman. Hmm. So I actually don't hate Goodnight, but maybe that's for a different time because she she's the Bond girl, right? Like she is the Bond girl for this film. Yeah. Oh yeah. We have secondary Bond girls like normal, but she is the main one that Bond is with. By the you can tell who the actual Bond girl is by who Bond is with at the end of the film. Yeah, totally. So yeah, so Bond enters this hotel, and he gets a bottle of champagne. I I don't really know where from. And we have these kind of people who work in the hotel saying like, ah, can I help you? Let me carry that. And Bond's like, well, no, I want to, I'm planning a surprise uh, for my other half. Uh, but you don't, you know, I want to hold the champagne, but you can get this door open for me. And he's like, yes, sir. Very good. And the guy just opens like the hotel door, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yep. which I kind of like. It's It's nice. It's. But it is one of those where it's like it's a very James Bond moment because the only reason it kind of works is because it's him. Like on paper, it's it's ridiculous that someone would kind of do that. But the fact that he is who he is and dresses the way he is and holds the way he is, like it's one of those moments where people just kind of buy into it and just help him out, even though on paper it's a ridiculous thing to do to just let somebody into a hotel room. Yeah, different times, I suppose. Well, actually, no, I think because like 
<laughs> I'd hope they wouldn't have done that even in the 70s. So, no, not different times. Just Bond. Just Bond. It's just Bond. So he gets into the hotel room. He gets the his gun out and starts looking around. But he hears the shower. The shower is going. And he has a little peek, because of course he does, and sees the woman that he was following before is in there showering. So he just kind of stands at the door, uh, puts his gun away, starts smiling, and then basically just watches her shower for a bit. So there is Mm. like kind of blurred glass or whatever. So you, you can clearly see her there, but it's, you know, not clear or anything. And then eventually just says good afternoon out loud, of which she correctly just kind of freaks out. It's <laughs> like, what? what? Yeah. And gets a gun, uh, because apparently she had a gun. So she points a gun at him and asks for a robe. Bond then gets very close to her to hand around the robe. So he's just kind of enjoying this. She's quite horrified, like there's a strange man in my room and I and, he, and I'm naked and he's watching me shower. And he's just kind of being all like smug and just really creepy and quite horrible, to be honest. It's, and, yeah, yeah, like for, for being in that situation, she handles it very well, <laughs> what's actually happening. But I think what the film was trying to do here, or at least what it reminded me of, is the scene from Thunderball, where, uh, is it Volpe? I think that's the character's name, where she's in the bath and, and Bond, you know, she asks for some clothes and Bond just gives her the shoes like as a little bit of a gag I, that's the impression i got from this where she's like give me my robe so he does but then he just stands there and stays there um but it just doesn't work as well i don't know what it is i think you're right it doesn't it's not it's not the same sort of fun it's it's just creepy i think it's just too long to be honest and where it goes as well like the next sec part of this scene doesn't help but in that one volpe broke into his room and got into the bath I believe. Yeah. And then Bond just kind of has a, it's, you know, it's more playful. She asked for clothes and stuff, but she, she broke into the room and then it's just a quick moment of like, here's your shoes for something to put on and then just sits there and that's it. You're done. Like, that's the joke. This one, you got to have like, you really got to sit in this moment of a man just staring at a woman in the shower and doesn't know he's there. And when she does know, just keeps kind of staying there. It's just all, this is awful and it's kind of surprising because i think roger moore so far already kind of bond girls and the way he treats women is like worse than sean connery which i find very surprising Mm, yeah maybe i mean i I can see why you think that with where this scene goes but yeah i don't know i'm trying to think it's just a different it's just a very different people like roger moore can't get away with the same things that sean did in terms of just like the way he acts them out. And so when they're still trying to do this sort of stuff where we you know, in the scene later on, he does get quite physical with, with this lady. It doesn't, not that that's ever good, but like this feels like it's just a extra wrong. Hmm. Well, I'm not saying Sean Connery was a saint, but it's like what we talked about before with Dr. No from Usher with Love, where he has like a girlfriend and, or someone that he kind of meets up with. And there's a more playful back and forth between the two. And then, you know, we get Bond girls, like the fundable Bond girl, who I can't remember her name, like feels a little bit more developed and stuff. So it just seems like the trend with Bond girls, I think we talked about this last week, is that they've just kind of gone completely downhill and have been quite terrible. And now we're just getting these type of scenes still. And it's just all a bit like, oh, this is 
it's just interesting that this is the era of Bond where I feel like women in these films and Bond girls are treated the worst and it's the most uncomfortable. And actually, like, the first three or four films was actually better than that. Mm. Yeah. This eventually leads to her putting on the robe and she's like, you should leave, please. Of which... I actually did laugh at this bit where she goes to call reception to, I think, basically say there's a man in my room or something like that and gets distracted and puts down the phone because Bond just starts playing with the golden bullets. It's not one of those moments where he's just like a kid. It's like how Sean Connery with the tape and stuff in Diamonds Are Forever. (laughs) Yeah. Just Bond childish picking stuff up and just messing with it because he can. Yeah. Yeah. I do think... um... But actually, no. I'll wait. I'll, I'll wait to say that bit. You carry on. Okay. Yeah. We'll, we'll get we'll get through this because th- this gets no better. So she, yeah, she puts down the phone because Bond's playing the golden bullets and that's Garamanga's bullets and she's there to deliver deliver them. So Bond then goes to return the bullets, of which Bond then smacks her gun away and then grabs her arm and then pins her on the bed and then kind of is pulling her arm back and have her pinned down and he's like, "Where are the bullets are going?" and She's like, you're hurting my arm. And then he's like, I'll break your arm. Uh, Which eventually she's like, it's Scaramanga. Like, I'm giving them to Scaramanga. And explains, I don't work for him. I'm, well, basically his lover. Um, And we do the the horizontal tango uh, every time he goes to kill uh, somebody. (laughs) I was like, wait a minute, what? what? Oh. Just give me a PG for everybody. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, he then uh, is like, where is where is Scaramanga? Of which she's like, I don't know. And then he, like, slams her and stuff and is still kind of, like, wrestling her. Uh, of which eventually, again, you get another funny line. You just can't appreciate it because of what's happening here. Uh, of where she's, like, gives a description of Scaramanga. It's like, what does he look like? And she's like, she's... He's tall, slim, and dark. Of which Bond's like, well, so's my aunt. That's not very helpful. <laughs> I, yeah, I like that. It's a funny I, I line. Say, it's just in a better scene. Yeah. I would have loved. What I was going to say, I don't find this scene as bad. I don't actually find it terrible, like the whole what he's doing here. Mainly because it, it, in in the context of this plot so far, like... He's got a hitman on him. Like, Bond's going to die, right? That's what he thinks. He thinks Scaramanga is coming after him to kill him. So, like, the stakes are high, basically. It's not just, like, I think maybe in other Bond films, it's, you know, well, I suppose it might be like end of the world plot still. So it still stakes are high. But this one feels very personal. So I can, like, that makes sense why he's wanting this information and he will do this sort of stuff. It's, I, I think the the problem is, is that I don't think Roger Moore is is very good at that. Um, and I think they eventually do learn that and they don't really have these sort of scenes with Roger anymore going forward. Uh, but I think overall the scene is okay for me. Ah, I just, no. <laughs> I'm not with you on this one, I'm afraid. Fair enough. I think the problem is that they're trying to combine two things. And we've probably already covered this, but they're trying to combine tough Bond who's trying to get info with Bond the charmer who's cheeky chappy or sexy lady time. They're trying to do that in the same scene like very quickly after each other and combine them and just it lasts ages as well and it just feels so bad like keep those things separate you can have a scene where bond is 
being tough and trying to get info and you can have a scene where he's kind of being a bit naughty or something but she's like oh tee hee or whatever you can do that stuff but don't put them in the same scene like this don't combine them it just makes it so awkward and weird where you have to equate bond the creep staring at someone in the shower and then bond kind of wrestling and hurting that same person and threatening to break their arm like in the same scene it's, it's just too much and if they separated it a little bit more i think it would have helped but yeah i think this is quite terrible overall mm. i mean bond's not a very nice person <laughs> at the end of the day well, that's true when yeah. you think about it so eventually uh, we find out that after a good old arm twisting that she's going to take the bullet to Scar- or she's going to take the bullet to Scaramanga, but she also says that Scaramanga is going to go to the Bottoms Up Club. Uh, I can't remember if she says that he has a hit on someone there or not. I think I think it might just be he has a date there. Yeah, because these the bullets date. are you know yeah. for his hit, his assassination attempt. But they, I don't think they quite put that together. But yeah, uh, she says like, "Oh, that's where he's going to be." So Bond says, "You should go and take the bullets to Scaramanga to make sure he does show up there." Oh, well, she then just starts pouring champagne and gives her a glass, and then like has a little toast between the two, and she's like, "Oh, let's drink to that or something," and. And this is when Bond is saying, like, you won't tell Scaramanga I was here because if he knows that I know or knows this happened, then Scaramanga might end up shooting you. And then they have a little champagne. It's like, oh, what a, a terrible end. Like, this is what I'm saying about combining two different scenes. Like, he then jumps to being, trying to be, I guess, intimidating but charming at the same time. It's just like, just pick a lane. Yeah, sake. maybe maybe not the best time for a little tipple after that. That's true. And then this kind of leads to the transition of, yeah. So I think the reason why they actually are having a champagne is for a joke, where we're saying it's called the Bottoms Up Club. So he's like, "Let's drink to that," and they ching the glasses and then say "Bottoms Up" as in drinking, and then it cuts to a woman's bottom <laughs> up, up, yes, uh, in the club itself. So. It, it's so, like, so on the nose. Bond yeah. says bottom-ups. Here's a woman's, like, ass zoomed in. There it is. Let's it's all probably, have a good laugh, I guess. It's probably the most sort of, uh, even by Bond standards, like, they like to have a bit of fun and that sort of innuendos and whatnot, but that is, like, the most overt example thus far i would say that's just this right is where there. john barry put the slide whistle on the wrong scene i think <laughs> yes. this is we should have like <laughs> that's so true next time john if he had four weeks i'm sure he would have had it <laughs> just those that last little bit of time that moment of creativity would have hit him yeah yeah so in this bottom up bottoms up club uh we see it's a very short scene actually inside the club um thankfully i suppose uh before we get any more of that, um, we just see a very quick scene of a man sitting at the bar where this, this lady was um, ordering a drink sort of thing. And, and then another man or smoking and, and another man comes and sits next to him and they sort of have a quick glance at each other sort of thing. But that's that's really it. There's no ex- explanation of who these people are. Um, you are just left to see that. And it then moves on quickly to Bond outside, outside the Bottoms Up Club 
sort of uh, scouting the area, trying to keep an eye out for Scaramanga. And this is a bit of a strange little scene now because Bond is basically opposite the club on the opposite side of the street in the doorway to uh, like a camera shop or something because it has, like, I remember seeing Kodak on the on the background. Um, so whilst in this little area, he's looking inside the shop window front of which there are cameras and uh, video feeds on TVs of like the live camera shot. So you get Bond, um, you know, keeping an eye on the Bombs Up Club and then he goes and, and has a look in the camera and kind of checks himself out, which I thought was quite uh, quite a nice little touch. You know, even in these situations, Bond wants to make sure that he looks good. So he's there just sorting out his collar and all that. Um, and whilst that happens, he spots uh, Nick Knack. Nick Knack comes up to him. And I missed this at first, but I guess what, what this is, is like Nick Knack's making fun of him. Because Nick Knack also does that. He kind of looks in the camera and and glances up to Bond. And it's just a kind of, you know, it's a bit like, what? What's going on? Um, and I think, am I right in thinking like the general idea of that is that he's just distracting Bond, basically? Well, Nick Knack's there for a specific purpose. So he's also scoping out the out the club. So yeah, I think Nick Knack's just messing with him. Just messing with him. Just, just making fun of Bond, you know, because he, sometimes he doesn't need to take it down a peg or two. Um, and as that's all happening, you do get shots of Scaramanga. Not very big shots. He's kind of like peeking through a, a blind or something, um, watching the the entrance to the Bottoms Up Club. Um, and after this whole little knickknack thing, Bond, I think I, I, this is a bit I didn't get. Like Bond looks up and then that makes him walk over. I don't know whether something was missing. I don't know what actually causes him to go over and start investigating i think it's the time because i think he has a specific time but we get a, a shot and it zoomed in on his i think a rolex his watch i want to say it might be the same watch from the last film oh okay i might be wrong on that because it's very quick but you do you know he's looking at his watch and stuff and they actually do have a shot which is just zoomed in on the watch i think that was probably more for the brand deal for the rolex probably but right. i want to say it might be the same one so i think it it's implied that he's been there for a while so eventually he just says okay i'm going to go into this club and see what's going on fair enough i was trying to i was like rewinding it thinking like is there someone leaving or cuz at one point there's like a little um <clears throat> whatever those things are called like the what people carry like ride on anyway that's besides the point so bond starts to walk over um and that's just as he's about to go in you think scaramanga's going to take the shot uh, but then just as, yeah, is about to go in the door, two men come out. It's the same two men that we just saw inside the club. And Garamanga actually shoots one of them, not Bond. Surprise, surprise. So, yeah, Bond falls to the floor, um, grabs his gun, and turns out that the guy that's got shot and the guy that was sitting there, um, well, I guess it's actually not revealed who that is yet. I'm sort of getting ahead of myself there. But, um, yeah, it's a guy from inside, and... The other man with him is a cop who very quickly spots Bond holding a gun and arrests him. And whilst he's doing all this sort of stuff, you do see Nick Knack. Like you say, Nick Knack was there for a specific reason too. Uh, he kind of comes up to dead body whilst uh, this other man's distracted. And and then, yeah, the guy's like, hey, step away from there. Like, don't touch that sort of thing. <laughs> don't, I'll put that down. Yeah, don't touch that. Um and then, yeah, so he walks off. And yeah, it's, it's kind of a bit of a strange scene. I mean, it's obviously like a subversion, right? Because you think Scaramanga's there aiming for Bond and it's not. 
that you think what's going on. It's okay, I guess. I think it could have... It wasn't very... I feel like with this sort of setup, it could have maybe been done a bit more dramatically. But yeah, the point is that Bond actually is not the target, at least not then anyway, and he gets arrested and um, driven away. I think this now might be a good time to say and basically made the exact same point we made in the last episode about Live and Let Die, that this film feels very similar to that one in terms of its pacing and a way a lot of the scenes play out. And this yeah. is just another one of those scenes similar to Live and Let Die where it just it's just a low-key scene. Um, so this film is about the same length as Live and Let Die, about two hours or just over two hours, and it's paced in that same way. So, And it comes with some of the same caveats and the same problems where you just get a lot of scenes like this where it's not really bad. It's just kind of a bit whatever. Um, and this film is unfortunately kind of filled with those type of scenes. Uh, yeah. And, and this is just another one. It's a shame as well because with a, when everyone talks about this film, a common thing is, oh, it's the one with Christopher Lee. Because everyone knows Christopher Lee, he had such a long career and he was in so many big standout films and franchises. And he's not really in this very much, really. I mean, no Bond villain really is in the film very much. And it's kind of like, this is one of those things where, yeah, he's he's in this scene, but like, doesn't really do much. It's not really, I don't know, wasted. I think just wasted. I think he has a decent amount of screen time. I think it's more just relative to the rest of the film where it's just, it's over two hours and just like last week, it it just shouldn't have been. It should have been edited down. So you still get a lot of scenes with him in. It's just because this film is so kind of padded with other stuff which doesn't involve him, I think it kind of dilutes those scenes a little bit because you're just spending all these extra scenes that don't really involve him. Um, But if you kind of edited it down and kept all the Christopher Lee's scenes in there i think you would probably get that more of that feeling of wow he was in this quite a bit or there was quite a lot of scenes because there are a decent amount of scenes with him in yeah i I suppose there are there are like there are later on the scenes with with other characters what i what i would have liked more is scenes with him and bond which obviously we get at the end but just not given the theming of this film where it is scaramanga and bond and and the sort of parallel between them i don't know it just feels like they're never really in the film together enough but that's later on anyway. Yeah, that's that's fair enough. I think that's a definitely a fair point. Like, it's kind of portrayed as, rather than Bond versus Scaramanga, it's more like Bond is doing his investigating, Scaramanga is just in control the entire time. Mm. And then he does his cocky villain thing, and that's when we have the final showdown, just to get ahead a little bit. But most of this film is Scaramanga just doing what he wants to do, and Bond is just kind of cluelessly trying to stop him and just failing for most of it. Yeah. So yeah, so the the undercover cop arrests Bond, puts him in a car, and takes him away just as more police is showing up. So while Bond is in the car, he's like, "Can I see an identity card?" Which he'll say, "We'll we'll get to that. Don't worry about that." And instead of going to the police station, they go to a dock and get on a, a small little boat and drive out into the the harbor. Uh, at the same time, we get Scaramanga and Nicknack because they were both there, get onto this big old wooden ship. Which, yeah. I mean, I just thought it was a pirate boat, really. Like, it's a <laughs> 1700s, maybe 1800s-style boat. Like, it's a really old-timey sort of boat. It looks good, though. 
Oh, it looks it, great. It does, it does kind of stand out. <laughs> like it's not the most uh, uh, secretive of, of um, methods to travel. Do you remember what the boat was called? It, I think the type of boat is called a junk. A junk. Okay, yeah, they, I think they called it a junk at one point. But I don't... Yeah, that's as much as I know. Okay, yeah. I mean, it's just one of... If you've seen Pirates of the Caribbean, you know what this boat looks like. Is basically one of them. And this was one of the times where I actually quite liked the music. I think when we get the these slower, more, I guess, atmospheric, maybe that's not the word, but these kind of slower pieces, I think they do actually work quite well. And the film does have quite a few kind of moments like that. It, You know, they're low key, but I thought they were quite good for being kind of low key. Yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah. Uh, so then we see Scaramanga go into the boat or the ship, the junk, if you will. And we see the woman. Now, I never wrote down this woman's name. And I don't, I'm I'm assuming somebody says it at some point, but she's a pretty core character to the film. The woman that Bond was in the hotel room with before, because it's the same woman as here. But I don't know, if, I never picked up on the name. I did, but I couldn't tell you when. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I put that her name's Anders. Anders. Yeah. Because normally they would give them a silly name, like Goodnight, right? But I guess they saved the silliest name for Goodnight. And, and Chew Me get... later. Yeah, I guess so. There's no Kissy Kissy or something. That's, no. That's what I was expecting. Uh, yeah, so this... Well, again, I'm not going to remember that name. <laughs> uh, so she's she's in there and Karamanga kind of meets up with her and... We have a bit of an odd scene where Scaramanga gets his gun out and just kind of gives her a stroke with it. Mm. So, I mean, it's an uncomfortable scene, but it's supposed to be uncomfortable because the whole idea is that this woman is actually not... She's not, like, in love with Scaramanga or something like that. It's more of a prisoner-type relationship. And she explains that later, but we kind of get a very strong hint of it here where Scaramanga goes to go to her in bed and just strokes her with the gun and she's just quite uncomfortable. Yeah, and I mean, you, you you saw that straight at the beginning as well, like when she's drying him off, when he walks out of the sea, she she looks kind of disappointed and sad for most of that scene, so. Definitely. I mean, it, it's, it's a nice way of painting Scaramanga. I think, like, he's a little bit of a creep at the same time, but... Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's Christopher Lee, so... Well, I guess we'll get into it later. It's a charming over... creep. Charming creep. <laughs> I'm invested in this creep. Yeah. Uh yeah, so then there's the junk or this ship starts moving. Uh and then we see Bond on the little small boat, arms crossed at this point, kind of a little bit impatient. Uh but the small boat that he's on with the undercover police uh, officer goes up to the wrecked ship of the Queen Elizabeth again. Which I have to say, when you first see it, it's a really this might be a word I'd say too much. I'm noticing with this podcast, there's a lot of words I default to. <laughs> yeah, same. Don't worry. When reviewing like 25 films, guess what? You start using the same same things again. Um, but very striking. Like this ship is huge in the dock. And the fact that it's not any sort of effect is really awesome. I love seeing this thing. Um, so again, we see it, but this time at night. And Bond sees the ship and they start going up towards it. And Bond sees his opportunity to escape. So he picks up the lifesaver and throws it at the man. Although he throws it off the man and he's off screen. 
it's shot very <laughs> awkwardly where it's just Bond picking up a lifesaver and throwing it like behind the camera and you don't see any of it but he is supposed to have just like put it around somebody and trapped him so he could then jump off no time to shoot that there's no time no <laughs> there's no time but yeah he he throws the lifesaver on someone and jumps off and walks into the or he's on top of this ship and then this microphone or this tannoy speaker voice says ah welcome commander bond and <laughs> a hatch opens up and he's like oh go down the hatch please very good yeah i like that bit. it's just yeah it's just so polite i really like it when they call him commander bond because like the only people that do that are people in the navy in general mm. so for bond fans you know as soon as commander bond is said you know like ah, oh, this is going to be part of the the navy um There'll because be a sub they're or kind of the only ones who up. calls him that because he yeah. was a commander in the navy. Yeah, yeah, it's like right, right, right through here, sir. And it's just like, yeah, it's just so ridiculous, but it's fun. Ah, oh, it's great. So then we get a very similar scene to the submarine scene from "You Only Live Twice." Is that right? Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. It has to be. Has, yeah, because it is. Um, of which a British Navy officer welcomes Bond and walks him through this secret base. So it turns out MI6 has set up this entire secret base of or base of operations here. Uh, the reason being is because it's near Hong Kong and China and things like that. So it's a very good place to, to spy and be located while nobody suspects they're there. And the f- cool thing about this place is that it's all tilted. They didn't completely redo the interior to be like a more traditional base. They simply built into what's there. So as Bond is being shown all these rooms, they're all tilted because this is a, a shipwreck and they just built around it. It's a it's a really cool set or a really cool um, area that they have here. Yeah, I remember in a previous podcast, I think I might have called out this, this scene for being too silly and... For the record, I would take that back. <laughs> like having watched this, I mean, it is silly, right? It is. It's like Alice in Wonderland sort of stuff, or, or um, yeah, or Willy Wonka, right? All these slanted uh, hallways and steps going all funny directions and stuff. But I, I forgot about that element. They say where, yeah, it's like a, a good place to to keep track, uh, like location wise, and it can't be bugged. They say so. That's the bit that I'm like, oh, okay, all right, I'll, I'll, I'll give them that. Like, that does make sense. I thought at first they just chose us because they wanted to have a funny-looking base, but in, in the context of the film, it's fine. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think so. And I, I think the fact that I just really like the way the boat looks and the fact that it's a real shipwreck, like, if they created it, maybe that would have been a bit much, but the idea of a real shipwreck could be somewhere that MI6 set up. It, it's just cool. It's that more cool integration um, that they sometimes have with the real world. Yeah. So then we get to the office at the back, and there's M. Like, M sitting there with Q next to him as well. And they reveal that the the undercover policeman isn't an undercover policeman. He's a man called Lieutenant... Oh, that is that the American way? Did I just mess up? Uh, I, think, I think they say it both ways in this film. I think they I say think Lieutenant so well. and Lieutenant, yeah. Yeah, so Lieutenant Hip, which is another name I missed as well. I just called him Lieutenant for the whole thing in my <laughs> right. notes. Like, yeah. it's a, such a simple name. I don't know how I missed it, but yeah, it's, <laughs> it's, uh, it's Lieutenant Hip. Yep. And yeah, here's his... Yeah, so 
Bond explains what happened, saying Scaramanga couldn't have had a contract on me because he had the perfect chance to kill him, but that didn't happen. And it's then revealed to Bond that the person that was killed was a man called Gibson, who was the man he was originally investigating about the energy crisis, about solar energy. And yeah, yeah. You get a funny line from M saying, oh, I almost wish Scaramanga did have a contract on you, Bond. This whole scene is very... um very thick with detail. You really have to pay attention to this bit. At least I did. I had to go back and listen to it again. Oh, I actually didn't think it was too bad. Really? I, maybe I'm just numb to it now, but I actually did somewhat follow it. I think the fact that I remembered the Gibson and the solar energy stuff from the start helped. Like, if I had forgotten that, then it probably would be a very different one because they do assume you 100% remember it because they just get straight into it. Like, you're mm. supposed to just know who Gibson is as soon as they say the name. Oh, yeah. So what they're saying is that Gibson had developed a technology with solar energy, which generated energy at 95% efficiency uh, called the Solex, a uh, Solex kind of panel thing. Um, so I don't really know what 95% efficiency really means. So, <laughs> like, It's but, just the MacGuffin. It's the MacGuffin of the film, right? It's Yeah, it's so MacGuffin-y, this one, where they do give some kind of explanation behind it but it's like you know okay whatever like yeah it's the thingy majog thingy majig where they there's an energy crisis and this will solve the energy crisis and i'm i am assuming that there was actually an energy crisis around this time as i think so yeah like they normally do that don't they yeah and then i put like m was saying that we're almost out of gold but i don't know what that means oh really i see i missed that all right (laughs) I, I don't, yeah, I, maybe I didn't get everything in the scene as I claimed to. Maybe I didn't actually <laughs> follow it. Because I just put, Eb says we're almost out of gold. They asked the lieutenant for it. And I have no idea what that means. Absolutely no idea. Um, Sorry, I think yeah. they're saying that. So Gibson had the sole legs on him when Hip was hanging out with him and investigating him. And Hip says that he saw the Solex in the Bottoms Up Club, but when he went to retrieve it after the guy had been shot, it wasn't there, which you then put it together that Nick Knack had stolen the Solex from Gibson when he was uh, looking at the body earlier. Yeah. Of which we then get M sarcastically saying, well, great job, everyone. <laughs> well <done. laughs> bravo. Yeah, bravo. Good, good <laughs> jobs all round. Wow, you, somebody's dead. You lost the Solex. Great job, everyone. It's quite rightly annoyed, to be honest. I mean, they had it and then they lost it. Yeah, exactly. He's, he's not wrong. It's just funny the way he reacts to it. It's just like, yeah, good one, guys. Best in the biz. Yes. <laughs> so a man then called High Fat, which I don't... I Are all the Asian names in this film meant to be somewhat of a bit of a joke? Uh, Why is that one a joke? Am I missing something? High fat, like high fat food or something. That's what I took it as. Oh, I mean, maybe if he was like a really fat character, I would be like, yeah, that's a bit. Oh, out. yeah, he is but, easy. But yeah, I, I didn't, I didn't get that. Oh yeah, maybe I'm wrong then. Like I, I, I know high is a thing, but the fact that his last name is just fat, I'm not saying that isn't a thing, but it seems like it felt too coincidental that the term high fat, like there's just a character called high fat, like high fat yogurt or something. That's all I was thinking of, but. Maybe I'm adding something into that that's not there. Mm, I don't know. Could be. 
I wouldn't put it past the film. Exactly, the right? Like, that's the era we're in. We have a character called Goodnight, for goodness sake. Like, yeah. They are all about the silly names in this one. So I kind of assume that how far. Like, there's a character called Chumi in yeah. this film. Chumi's pretty bad. Like, Chumi. And apparently, I... okay, but yeah, so. Bond basically says there's this guy, I can't remember exactly what he does, but like a powerful businessman in the area is, and Bond kind of puts together that high fat probably hired Scaramanga to do this. Of which Bond then has a a cunning idea and writes something on a piece of paper, gives it to Q, Q reads it and it's just like, oh, really 007? (laughs) Maybe the best really we've had and probably will ever have. Oh. Did, do you actually see him write something? Because I, I always picture him just drawing a nipple. <laughs> oh, he probably that. did, yeah. <laughs> With a big arrow. I think this, yeah. <laughs> it's like a little kid's drawing. That I really want to see that, like Bond trying to draw something that just looks terrible. <laughs> <laughs> it says 007 in the corner. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, age 30-something, yeah. Because yeah. um, the, the, the whole thing in that, that, as I was saying, like all that plot detail there, the bit that I had to go back and re-listen to was... So this Gibson person had basically fleed and they and they were trying to get him back so he had some sort of bargain for immunity or something that's the bit that I I got I stumbled over I mean it doesn't really matter cuz the character's dead and you're right like they they soon explain the links to high fat and that's where the the story goes but yeah that whole the whole plea I don't know if there's like a yeah some sort of bargaining chip is a thing that I kind of struggled with well, now that we're talking about it, I felt confident at the end of the scene. But you're, yeah, now that we're talking about it, I I missed a ton of stuff because I think I sort of remember that. But I'm just so used to the Bond jargon that you're just like, right, forget that. I'm not even going to try to understand what they're talking about with the bargaining chip and stuff. Because obviously, MI6 were doing some sort of sting there because they had a they had um hip working with the guy. So obviously, something was going down there. And if he if Gibson showed him the Solex. I'm assuming that was like, hey, help me out here. Here's the proof I have it. And the next step would have been them to, to leave. Right. I, just, I remember now. Because I think it, they say that the next place Gibson wanted to meet was in Bangkok because of his links to high fat, which is then why it goes there. It, it all makes perfect sense. That's the thing is, like, as you say, when you watch these films, you don't think about this stuff. But when we're doing a podcast and we have to explain where we are in the film and you have to say this, you suddenly sort of realise, oh, God, what, what actually happened there? <laughs> it starts to unravel. Yeah, we don't want to think about it too much, but we have to. Exactly. But yes, yeah, so Bond has given Q a piece of paper, which he's uh, flummoxed by. And then M. So Bond is going to go and find High Fat, basically, and go after him in. So you say Bangkok, right, in Thailand? Yeah, he's going to go it's going to go try and meet High Fat specifically because he thinks that High Fat would never have seen Scaramanga. So he's going to disguise as Scaramanga. Yes. Which is quite quite a uh, you know that that's that's going all in there. It's quite a quite a leap of faith. I mean it's a very cocky bond idea, isn't it? Cocky like, bond bonds. is back. Yeah. Yeah. So this all ends with M saying take good night with you. So we know that good night is going to be accompanying Bond on this mission to Bangkok. Mm. <laughs> Great. Oh boy. And with that, you have reached the end of part one of episode nine of the Bond Revisited podcast. Join myself and Joe next time where Bond takes part in a martial arts tournament, 
is assisted in a car chase by J.W. Pepper, all leading to the final showdown with Scaramanga. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll see you for part two.